Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to New Life Church Online. As Pedro mentioned, uh, we are still having to meet online almost five months now, and uh, we look forward to the day where we will get together and be able to meet face-to-face. Please pray that we would be able to do this sooner than later. We're still waiting for permission from the government, but we really miss you all, and we pray for you all, and uh, we hope that these lessons in the, the parables of Jesus would be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you. And that's a series that we are busy going through at the moment, the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And it's been a wonderful journey as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke and we get to the point where Jesus is teaching and this is his ministry which has lasted, which we know lasted for up to three years. And during those times, during that three years, he used parables quite extensively. And Pedro mentioned last year, a parable, last week, (laughs) that a parable is basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And the word parable comes from a Greek word that means to lay alongside of. And that's exactly what parables do. They take eternal truths and they lay them alongside stories of everyday life which we can relate to and which we understand. And last week we studied the parable of the sower, and this week we will study the parable of the Good Samaritan. So please read with me, if you have your Bibles, in Luke chapter 10. We'll read from verse 25 to verse 37, or the scripture will be on the screen for you to follow. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may remember last year an article uh, from the National that had a headline that stated, New Good Samaritan Law set to be finally introduced in the UAE. Well, this Good Samaritan law was passed by the Ministry of Health, which allowed bystanders to offer aid in medical emergencies 
without the fear of legal consequences. And I found it intriguing that the UAE government had an understanding or a concept of what the Good Samaritan was, or what the Good Samaritan should be. But this parable could very possibly be the most well-known parable of all. Uh, whether in Christian circles or, or in non-Christian circles, people seem to know or have heard about this parable. But I think in all fairness, they don't know the whole account, and often they draw conclusions from this story that are out of its context. And that's what we want to look at this morning, this parable in its context, and exactly the intended meaning that Jesus um, has for us. So my first point this morning is from verse 25 to verse 29, the occasion of the parable. Well, the larger context of this parable must be understood by understanding that the book of Luke takes a turn in the previous chapter. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke tells us, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from this point on, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on the way. He is fixed on the cross, and he is making his way to Jerusalem in order to be crucified and to be resurrected. This means that this parable needs to be understood in the shadow of the cross and in the shadow of his resurrection. So Jesus is determined now. He's determined to get to Calvary and finish his work, or the critical work that he needs to be doing to provide salvation to humanity. So that's the context. That's the immediate context. And loving God and loving your neighbor and helping people who have broken down by the, the side of the road and, and offering aid in medi medical emergencies is not the full picture. That's some of the picture, but it's not the full picture here. Remember, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Keep that in mind as we study this, this um, parable. There's something much more going on than just helping people in need. In the immediate context, we see here from this passage in, in verse 25, a lawyer, a theologian who, who's asking Jesus a test I'm asking him a question in order to, to test him. Look there in verse 25. Luke said that a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's helpful for us to know that lawyers in Israel in the time of Jesus, they were theologians, people who had studied the mo mosaic Law. That's where the word lawyer comes from. He was a student of the Mosaic law. So he was a lawyer in that sense, not in the sense of lawyer as we understand it today. So this man knew the scriptures and he was seeking or he should have been seeking to apply the scriptures uh, to everyday life and even teaching those. Now, he asks the question that I think is of utmost importance. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know from the passage that he's not asking in good faith. We know that he's not asking sincerely. Um, the passage tells us that he was putting Jesus to the test. 
I think that's a sad statement, isn't it? How foolish to put Jesus to the test. So there's no question that's more important, I think, than the question that he's asking. All people, no matter who you are, no matter how young and old you are, no matter what culture you come from, all people have a sense of eternity. And they want to know how they can avoid even death so that they can live for eternity. And this question is not only asked in this passage, it's asked later on in another eight uh, chapters. We remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, the rich young ruler, he comes to, to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The exact same question. And right through the, the, the New Testament, this question is repeated over and over again. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this helps us understand that this question was on the minds of many Jewish people living in Jesus' time. This was a question all of them had. They wanted to know the right answer to the question, what does a person have to do to inherit eternal life? Um, and this is a question that we're going to look at this morning. This is an important question. This is a question that is not just for the people living during the time of Jesus. This is a question that we need to be able to answer, or we be need to be able to understand even in the 21st century. So my question to you is, have you asked this question before? Are you asking this question maybe now? Is this a question that is, that is on your heart or, or in your mind even as we gather together this morning? It should be. It ought to be. The fact that it's repeated so frequently in the, in the New Testament indicates that this is a question that is of ultimate importance. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? But the question itself here that this lawyer asked was contradictory. The lawyer asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit et eternal life? That word inherit is also important to understand. Um, an inheritance, if we were to define an inheritance, by its definition is a gift, isn't it? It's not something that you can earn. It's something that has to be given to you. So he's asking this question, what can I do to, to get, to receive eternal life? It is something that is received, usually because um, somebody donates it. So the lawyer here is misunderstanding the nature of eternal life. It is not something that is earned. It's not something that is deserved. It is a gift that is received. Notice in verse 20, 26, Jesus responds to this lawyer with a question. He says to him, he answers with a question, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? How do you understand it? So Jesus says the answer to that question is in the Bible. What is written in the Bible? Um, and I love the way that Jesus is lifting up the scriptures here as the ultimate authority to this, to this man who supposedly knows the scriptures. What does the scriptures say? How do you read this? Um, what is in the law? And I think there's a lesson here for us. You know, we cannot follow Jesus and reject what the scriptures say. 
We cannot say that we are disciples of Jesus and pick and choose which scriptures we want to obey and which scriptures we don't want to obey. What has Jesus said? That's what we do. There's no debate. We can't pick and choose. What do the scriptures say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus says the answer to that question is found in the Bible and only the Bible, not outside the Bible. But notice the answer here, the answer that the lawyer gives. Look at verse 27. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as well. So that actually was the correct answer. That is what the Bible said in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's what's written. Actually, this lawyer has taken two scriptures together and joined them. So he took a scripture from Deuteronomy 6 and he's taken a scripture from Leviticus 19 and combined them to answer Jesus. And notice Jesus commends the lawyer. And he says to him, look in verse 28, he says, Yes, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice there, do this and you will live. Now, now hold on a moment, okay? <laughs> that may surprise you. It surprised me when I first studied this or when I, when I first read it. We know that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by our works. So why is Jesus teaching here that works can save us? Is Jesus teaching this? Well, Scripture never contradicts itself. So we need to understand the, the context here. We need to understand what the Scripture is saying. The Scripture is not saying that works saves us. Jesus, as usual, remember in the story of the, the rich young ruler, Jesus knew what was going on in that rich man's heart. He knew that his sin was covetousness. And here, in the same way, Jesus knows the problem of this lawyer. He knows the, the sin that is in his heart. And he is exposing him. But notice, this is not all that Jesus says. Jesus goes on to say in the same verse, but then he says, go and do it. Go and do it. This is huge. This is massive. This, this is right here in this passage. But not only here in verse 28, it's also repeated in verse 37. Both times he answers correctly and Jesus says, both times, Go and do it. There's a repetition here. Jesus wants us to hear. Loving God and loving neighbor perfectly is actually all that is required to inherit eternal life. But there's a problem. There's a problem which Jesus is exposing here. We cannot perfectly obey the law of God. Obeying these two simple summaries of the, the Ten Commandments is, is easier said than done. Who is able to keep the law perfectly? And we know from our studies in the, in the Bible that nobody is able to do that. No one has ever been able to do that and nobody ever will be able to do that. No matter how good we might think they are, we are all sinful people. The only person able to fulfill the law is Jesus Christ himself. 
the only sinless Son of God. The Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So in other words, nobody will ever be saved by obeying the law. And Paul tells us that the purpose of the law is not so that we can earn eternal life. The purpose of the law is to show us what sin is. Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 7, verse 7, he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the law was important. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was there to point us to Jesus, our only hope. The law was never there to offer us salvation. And Jesus here was showing this lawyer who was supposed to have known the law. He was supposed to have understood this, that he himself could not obey and fulfill the law as the scripture requires us to. And if you could fulfill the law perfectly, then you have no need for Jesus. You have no need for a savior. And I think this lawyer somehow thought that he was self-righteous, that he had kept these laws. We know here and we can see here that the lawyer knows the right answers. He knows scripture. But he's not living the right answers. And Jesus knows that. And soon here in the passage, in this parable, Jesus is going to expose that to everybody around him, that he is not fully obeying and completing and fulfilling the law as is required. And to show this lawyer the sin in his heart, Jesus asks a second question. Look at verse 29. He, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, he is justifying himself, just as the scripture says. He's making excuses now. The lawyer should have realized the impossibility of perfect obedience. He should have said something like this. Well, Jesus, it's impossible for me to obey the law perfectly. I cannot love God the way the scriptures command me to love him. And, and I do not love anyone nearly as much as I love myself. So to tell me how a sinner like me can receive eternal life. That's what he should have said. That's how any sinner who has humbled himself speaks to the living God. That's how we should. If the lawyer had answered Jesus like this, Jesus would have explained the way of salvation. He would have told the lawyer that salvation is found in no other name under heaven given to men except in Jesus Christ. He would have told him that Jesus is the only one who has ever fully obeyed the entire law and would fulfill the entire law and that his obedience can be credited to us, to men and women who respond in, in humble faith to him. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And I think the lawyer was trying to stump Jesus here. He was trying to save face. I think he was made to look foolish because any young Jewish child knew that the law was summarized in love for God. This wasn't a hard question. 
love for God and love for neighbor. And he was saying, in fact, yes, yes, of course, we all need to love our neighbors. But exactly how do you define what a neighbor is, Jesus? You can see he's looking for loopholes here, isn't he? And the question assumed that people fall into different categories. Categories of neighbor and categories of non-neighbor. He was basically asking, well, how can I spot others who belong to God's people so that I can love them and I don't have to love the others? He was looking for a way out here. In fact, this lawyer had no love for the lost. He had no love for those who were outside of the, the Jewish culture. He was a racist. He decided that everybody else had no right to be called his neighbor. They had no value to be loved by him. And he determined that only God's people, only the Jewish people were his neighbors and were, were fit to have his affection. And I hope you see here how, how sinful his, his hard attitude actually is. There's this prejudice here. There's this racism here. And right here we see the sin that that Jesus was exposing in this, in this lawyer's heart. More application later. My second point. Look at my second point in verse 30 to verse 35. We see here the outline of the, the parable. So rather than offering just a, a simple definition of what a neighbor is, Jesus answers the lawyer's question by, by telling a parable. He speaks a parable. And Jesus begins a parable with a man going on a trip. Look at verse 30, the first part of, of verse 30. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So we know Jerusalem um, was on a mountain. And Jerusalem to Jericho was about 15 miles and, and about 3,500 feet lower in, in elevation. So we know that the road was, was steep, we know that the, the road was dangerous. There were caves, there were rock formations where um, thieves and robbers could hide um, away from the travelers and then, and then pounce on them during the night. So a journey on this road was, was very dangerous. And in fact, the, the ancient travelers called this road the bloody way. So Jesus continues his parable. Look at the next part of verse 30. He says, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So we see what happens here. Three men pass by the, the wounded man, and each was, each was tested regarding his compassion for helping the wounded man who was in desperate need. But notice here, two of these travelers failed the test. Two of these Travelers failed the test. Jesus says in verse 31, He says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So both men simply passed by without helping this wounded man who was in desperate need of help. And most likely they were coming from Jerusalem where they had been involved in some religious activity, some religious duty. Notice, 
The one was a Levite. The one was a, a priest. They were religious people coming from Jerusalem. You know, one commentator, a few commentators have said that they could not help this man because they would defile themselves and they would not be allowed to carry out their, their duties. But as the scripture says, they came from Jerusalem. So that means they weren't going to perform a religious duty. They were going home. And, and if they were going home, then this is even more tragic, isn't it? Because their lack of compassion is even more clear here, is even more visible here. It wouldn't have been a problem for them to be, have been unclean in their home for, for a few days, and then they could have gone back to Jerusalem. But Jesus did not tell us in this passage why they did not stop to, to help. But still, it's a tragic, it's a tragic um, in, uh, occasion. The lawyer was, was not at all prepared for the next person in Jesus' parable. Um, he might have anticipated that perhaps a hero would have come along, maybe a Jewish lawman, a man who knew the law, or maybe just a, another layman, a Jewish person. Instead, Jesus says in verse 33, look at verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now again, you have to understand the context here to understand what is going on here. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They were not friends. The Samaritans were a mixed race. They were half Jew and they were, were half Gentile. And in centuries past, even some Jews had married Assyrians who were the enemies of the, the Jewish people. And because of this mixed race, these, these um, Samaritans, they were ostracized from the pure Jews who who were so fanatically nationalistic. And in Jesus' day, there was a severe animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And notice then that the last person expected to help a Jew was a Samaritan. But he does. He is the only one who helps this, this wounded Jew. He takes care of the wounded man. He personally tends to the wounds of this man. He then takes him to an inn, a, a hotel on the side of the road, and he pays for him to stay there. And two denarii was not, was not a small amount. It was, it was a large amount. Um, and he promised to even give more if, if it was needed in, um, in the future when he came back to pay, to pay off his account for um, this man's recovery. And the Samaritan here is demonstrated as a person who had compassion. He had compassion by his practical deeds. His love was demonstrated by his deeds. Now a good neighbor is willing to stop and help. And remember, this is the question, who is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is giving the story as an answer. This is a picture of what a neighbor is. 
And a good neighbor is willing to stop and help, even if it is inconvenient. J.C. Ryle, he once said, the kindness of a Christian towards others should be a practical love, a love which entails on himself on him self-sacrifice and self-denial, both in money and time and trouble. His charity should be seen not merely in his talking, but in his action, not merely in his profession, but in his practice. So the story is developing here, and the Lord is coming to the conclusion, he's coming to the purpose of this parable. And he's teaching us what a neighbor really is and how we are to act towards our neighbors. Not just by our talk, but we are to love them in our actions. It leads to my third point. We see that in verse 36 and verse 37. Here we see the purpose of the parable or the lesson of the, the parable. And here Jesus is ending his parable of the Good Samaritan with a practical application so that we can understand. And he asks the lawyer a question in verse 36. Look there at verse 36. He asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Look there in verse 37. Notice there the lawyer could not bring himself to say Samaritan. Look what he says. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. That's the second time Jesus has said that. Go and do likewise. So really the question is not who is my neighbor, but rather whose neighbor am I? We shouldn't be asking who is my neighbor. We should be asking who can I be a neighbor to? We look at geography, and sometimes we look at culture. Sometimes we look at race. We look at our ethnicity or even our bank accounts to define what a neighbor is. But according to Jesus, a neighbor is something we are. It's something we are. I love this definition by one commentator I read this week. He said, Neighbor is not a concept to be, to be debated or defined, but a flesh and blood person in the ditch waiting to be served. You can't define your neighbor in advance. You can only be a neighbor when the moment of mercy arrives. That's a wonderful definition. And the way in which we love others, and the way in which we show mercy particularly to those in need, as we learned a few weeks ago, is a practical demonstration of our love for God. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about the, the dreadful plague that swept through the city of Alexandria, Egypt, in the third century. And the bishop of Alexandria, um, Dionysus, he he described it, or he described the unbelievers. He said the heathen, he uses the word heathen, which is unbelievers. He says the, he the heathen were pushing the sufferers away and they fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead. And they treated unburied corpses as, as dirt, hoping 
to avoid the spread and the contamination of the, the fatal disease. This is how the heathen were acting. But then he gives a description of, of the Christians. He says it was the Christians who were loving and caring for the sick. It was the Christians who were taking care of the people who were contaminated, even at the cost of their own lives, risking the infection in order to help others. The Christians who were loving. There are a couple other examples of how Christians have responded in love during times of plagues and epidemics, which I thought was relevant for us this morning that I want to share with you this morning. I want to conclude with this morning. The second example happened in the 14th century and the Black Death was haunting Europe. In just five years it had wiped out as much as half of the population, um, especially in the urban areas where it was highly populated. And many had fled Europe. But Martin Luther and his pregnant wife, Katerina, they remained in Wittenberg to, to care for the sick. And they were convinced from Scripture that they needed to stay, that they needed to serve in this highly contagious environment. And the verse that they held on to and the verse that they cited was from Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And we see here, Luther and Katerina, they practically demonstrated their love for God by loving their neighbors. During a difficult time, it wasn't convenient, it wasn't easy, and the way of Jesus was vindicated over time through their trial that they went through. The third example happened in the 1850s in London. At this point, London was the most powerful and the, the wealthiest city in the whole world with a population of more than 2,000 just in that city. But there was a cholera outbreak in 1854 which struck fear into the hearts of all the, the Londoners. And Charles Spurgeon was ministering there at that time. And he saw the plagues of his day as a, as a storm that, that were pushing people to find their hope and their refuge in Christ, the rock, during this difficult time. And he tells of a, of a story of visiting a, a dying man who was, he was infected with cholera. And Spurgeon was well aware of how contagious cholera was and he was well aware of how dangerous it was to visit other infected patients but, but this did not stop him he was burdened for this man's soul he had previously shared the gospel with this man and this man had opposed him but in this man's state in his physical unhealthy state as he was contemplating death and as he was contemplating eternity Charles Spurgeon went to meet him and this is how he describes the meeting he says, that man in his lifetime had been wont to jeer at me. In strong language, he often denounced me as a hypocrite. Yet he was no sooner smitten by the darts of death than he sought my presence and counsel 
No doubt feeling in his heart that I was a servant of God, though he did not care to own it with his lips. He wanted to hear the gospel, and Charles Spurgeon was ready to tell him, despite the environment, in spite the diseases that were infecting and killing people at the time. Now I said two weeks back, when we looked at the story of the, the sinful woman washing Jesus' feet with her, with her hair and, and her tears, remember what I said, a life of astonishing love is the wonderful response of lost sinners who have found true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And all these examples that I've read of Christians through, through history have shown this astonishing love because they have received this amazing grace, this true forgiveness. And the question I want to ask you this morning as we come to the end is, what type of neighbor are you? Do you show this astonishing love to, to those around you? Are you stopping to help needy people during this coronavirus pandemic? Or do you make excuses? Or are you making all kinds of excuses not to be a good neighbor? And I think this coronavirus pandemic, God has allowed for a reason. And maybe, just maybe, it is so that we can show a life of astonishing love to our neighbors so that they can see just how glorious Jesus is. But who is this Good Samaritan? I need to finish with this this morning. You know, the Good Samaritan is a picture of the Great Samaritan. Jesus left heaven to come to our neighborhood to have compassion for us. Jesus is the one who rescues the dead and the damned in their wounded, sinful state. Jesus is the one who pays for it all, who rescues us from slavery and is often hated by the ones who, who care for him. Jesus is the one who gives and gives more than oil and wine. He gives his life on the cross so that his blood would heal us from our sin, so that his love could heal us of our brokenness, so that his acceptance could reconcile us with God again. And the truth is, the sad truth is, we are all like this priest. We are all like this Levite in this parable who, who passed by the, the beaten and wounded man on the side of the, the road. We are all guilty of, of not wanting to be inconvenienced. We are more worried about our, our schedule. We are all worried about our agenda than to worry about the soul of our neighbors. And if you are honest you would have to agree with me that we are not capable of loving our neighbors as the law requires. Especially as Jesus says to love our enemies as we love ourselves. We fall short. We fall short of this. But there is good news here, folks. Thanks be to God that while we were yet in our sins, God demonstrated His love for us by sending His Son, Jesus. This is a demonstration of the ultimate love in caring for us when we desperately need help.
Consider this for a moment, as one commentator says. We were not his neighbors, nor he ours. But he chose by incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that human beings hounded him to a cross, he rescued us at his own expense. And he has paid in advance the cost of completing our redemption and of perfecting us for imaginable, unimaginable glory. And now Jesus says to us, you go and do likewise. And clearly, Jesus expects his followers to live as he does. We know the gospel of Jesus justifies us, but it also transforms us. It changes us. I think this parable is teaching us again that our love for God is demonstrated by our love for others. This parable calls us not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. It calls us to love and to action. If we have received mercy from Christ, we are to go and demonstrate mercy to others as a demonstration of our love for God. Let us attend to the needs that God brings across our paths. Let's not waste this pandemic. There are people in need, not just physically, but there are people in need emotionally, people who are worried, people who are anxious, people who are lonely. It doesn't take much, folks, to pick up a phone and ask them how they are and to be compassionate and to share the love of Christ with them. Let's not waste this extra time that we have on our hands because of our our change schedules and our change timetables. Let us be intentional. Let us be compassionate. Let us be merciful to others, even as we have received mercy from Christ. Amen? May God be pleased to work again through this trial to glorify Christ's name and to extend His kingdom by our obedience for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this painful reminder this morning. And Lord, we pray firstly for your forgiveness. Lord, we have all fallen short. We have all avoided helping others and caring for others and showing compassion and displaying mercy. We, I think in this isolated environment, have become so concerned about our own physical health that that we have forgotten about others. I know I have, Lord, and I ask for your forgiveness for that today. Lord, I pray for those who agree with me this morning. Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be more intentional. More intentional about those outside of our own little bubble that are, that are struggling, that are suffering. And we all know somebody, Lord. We all know somebody who is, 
who is struggling through this pandemic. So Lord, please help us not to be so self-absorbed with our own problems that we forget to display the love of Christ to others around us, that we forget to fulfill the very purpose for which you have saved us, Lord, to tell others about our wonderful Savior and to display his love in acts of mercy and kindness. Lord, we pray for your help this week. Help us to remember this parable. We pray the Spirit of God, Lord, would apply this parable to our hearts throughout this week, not just for this hour that we are together. And that we, Lord, would make the changes that we need to with the help of your Spirit so that we can honor you and glorify you and make your name famous here where you have put us and abroad or wherever you send us. We pray that we will be faithful this week, Lord. Help us, Lord, we pray in our, in our weakness. And again, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. He is the great Samaritan when no one else was willing to help us, showed us mercy and compassion and love. Thank you for that great salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.